0: So good. Well, good morning, New Life Colangata. How are we? We're good. If I've not met you, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in a series called Rework. And it's a series about how can we be on mission for the kingdom of God no matter where we find ourselves. And, and I love it because of the practicality of this series to help us understand that we don't actually have to work for the church to work for the kingdom of God. Like, I love that God has placed each and every one of us in unique situations unique positions, and given us these unique gifts to be the light of Christ in all these areas that we find ourselves. And today what we're going to do is we're going to go back into the Old Testament and we're going to be exploring what it was like for the nation of Israel when they were living as captives in the land of Babylon. Now a couple of weeks ago online I preached about this, how they were in captivity in Babylon and we're going to look at Jeremiah and what God commanded them to do when they were living in a foreign land, land, and they were living actually amongst their greatest enemy they ever faced. So we're going to go to Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, so that it may bear sons and daughters that you may increase there and not diminish. Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you're always about redeeming and restoring. You're always about peace and love. God, I pray that you would just help me preach your word today with compassion, with truth, and with grace, God. That at the end of this, they wouldn't look to me, but they would only look to you, the one who brings life, and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So imagine a perfect Christian city. Like, imagine there was a city here that was just full of Christians. And so it had Christian governors, like leaders that were faithful Christians. There wasn't a hierarchy of power, but a, power, a hierarchy of servant leadership like Christ had. And it was governed by all of God's standards. So everyone was treated equally with dignity, love and respect and value and worth, where the trade was fair and, and equitable, where there was no poor or needy, where the wealth was distributed and we shared everything among the people, where the environment was looked after and we cared for it. Where there was no crime and kids could just play in the streets without any fear. A place where love, mercy and grace reigned. Who would live in that city? That would be awesome, right? And at the yeah, in the front of that city, we could have a sign that says, to heaven for us and to hell for everyone else. No? Well, that's essentially what we're saying when we want to live in a city and brush everybody else. And see, this is what the Amish have done And the monks, to a degree, over time. They've gone, these people are filthy and dirty. We're going to remove ourselves and just have this holy little huddle over here. We're going to put up fences and we're going to have nothing to do with the world. They can just all go to hell. Sounds good. Like, when I think about it, I'm like, you know what? Life would be much easier living in one of those areas, right? In one of those communities. Like, there'd be way less temptation... There'd be way less struggles with money. There'd be way less um, different ideologies and people coming against me. It'd be way safer for my kids. But let me tell you, that's just the easy way out in life. And it's a direct disobedience to Jesus' command as Christians. I'll say that again. It's a flat-out disobedience to Jesus' command to us as Christians. We find that in John 17, verse 14. So at this moment, Jesus is praying for the disciples. He's about to go to the cross. And this is the last time he prays for his disciples. He's praying to the Father and asking the Father to work in and through his disciples. And he says, I've given them your word. He's talking to the Father. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying to the Father. He goes, you know what? The world's hated me. And they're going to hate them. But I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm asking you leave them there and you protect them from the evil one who wants to pull them in to sin. <clears throat> and he says, he continues, they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus saying, hey, I've sanctified them. Sanctify them by the truth, the word of God. We carry the truth with us, the word of God. And he says, as you've sent me, the mission you gave me, I'm giving them. That they would be sent in the world with the gospel, into the messiness of the world. And you might say to me, well, Jesus is talking about the disciples, Scott. They're not talking about me. And in the context, you'd be 100% correct. And we need to read the Bible in that context. But I love it because Jesus continues the prayer and he says in the next, very next verse, I do not pray for these alone, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. And that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the command that we have. That Jesus Christ says, I'm not praying for these alone. But I'm praying for every single person that believes the gospel through their message. That's every single person from then until today. That we would be sent into the world with the truth of God's love that we wouldn't be hiding away in a whole little huddle. We'd be in a foreign land, so to speak. And this is where the Israelites find themselves now. They're not tucked away in their little perfect little city where only Israelites are and everyone with the same belief as them there. And what they do is they find themselves in this foreign land. In fact, in the enemy's land, surrounded by people that think totally different to them. They live totally different to them. They worship a totally different God. And they do totally different things. Like their morals are totally different to the Israelites. So the question is, what do they do? Do they rally against the system? Do they rally against culture? Do they fight against the government? Do they fight to the death? No. God commands them to do something that goes against the grain, the natural grain of the human heart. It's interesting. We've got to know the context of where we find ourselves here. So Jeremiah lived around 600 BC. At the time, King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he came and he destroyed Jerusalem, and he carried any of the survivors away captive to his city in Babylon, which is located on the Euphrates River in present-day Iraq. It's about 100 kilometers uh, south of Baghdad. And Jeremiah was commissioned by God to warn the people that they were going to be destroyed because they had turned away from God's laws, and they turned away from God. And what they did, they gone and worshipped other gods. So Jeremiah goes to them and speaks to Israel and says, you've committed adultery in your God and you've attached yourselves to other gods. Now there's this imagery in the Old Testament where it talks about adultery. It's like a marriage. There's faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And it's often told to Israel, you are committing adultery. When you go and worship other gods, you're committing adultery on me. That's the language God used. That's how God feels when we go and worship other gods. Because God is always faithful in everything he does. And when we go and worship other things, we're committing adultery against him. God's been faithful in the relationship and they have been constantly unfaithful. And because of their unfaithfulness, Jeremiah prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of all the people. But they don't even listen to him or his warnings. They just don't listen. So what they do is they reject God and they reject his messenger. Sound familiar? Because about 600 years later, that's what they did to their Messiah. And because they rejected God and his messenger, God brings judgment on Israel through Nebuchadnezzar. And he just utterly destroys the city. He literally raises the city to the ground. And Nebuchadnezzar takes all the survivors captive to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah is a unique prophet because he's there before the destruction. He's there during the destruction. And he's there after the destruction of Jerusalem when King Nebuchadnezzar came and did all that. So soon after this destruction, this devastating event, God tells Jeremiah to write a letter to the people of Israel that are captive in Babylon. And he says in Jeremiah 29.1, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so he's writing this message to everyone who's been carried away. And their lives have been utterly destroyed. Like they are now the laughing stock of the Middle East. They are mocked. They are scorned. Um, they're taken captive. They have no national identity now. That's just been destroyed. They're being made to assimilate. They're being made to adopt the culture of Babylon. And this is how in ancient times, whole nations actually ceased to exist. Like nations would literally be wiped off the face of the earth and swallowed up by other nations, never to be revived again, ever. And that was actually the goal of most conquering kings, was to erase their existence forever. And how you did that is you destroyed their cities, you destroyed everything, their writings, their temples, their statues. You just wiped it all out. And then what you did was you grabbed whoever was left and you made them assimilate into your culture. And then you would cross-marry with them that all the remnants of their nation, or their ethnicity, would just be totally lost. So we need to understand that the nation of Israel knows this and in their minds they're thinking, is this the end of Israel forever? What do we do now? There's no nation of Israel, there's no Jerusalem, there's no temple, there's no country that God has seemingly rejected and left them. Who are they now? What's their identity? They're now citizens of Babylon. Can they even call themselves Israelites? What do we do? Do we assimilate and just forget the past? Or do we not settle down and try and plan our escape and fight? You know, have you ever been in a situation where you're in a place that's so foreign to you that you just actually don't know what to do? Like, I've done a bit of traveling over my time and I've gone to different cultures, and some of them are so different to what I grew up in. I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what that norms are. I don't know if it's right to greet or to not greet, to put your hand out or not put your hand out. When someone offers you something, do you have to take it or do you not take it? Like, in different cultures, they have different ways to express themselves. You know, I've been in some countries where I've literally been robbed with a machete. And so I'm going to countries and I'm like, I don't know what's right here. I don't know what's wrong. And the recent trip we took with my family, with my boys and my wife, we went to Thailand, to Phuket. Now, let me tell you, that place is full of darkness. Like walking down that main street where there's sex trafficking, where there's drugs, where there's alcohol, you can literally sense the evil there. And as the father, I'm just on edge, right? Like I'm just, I've been held up by a machete before. I'm like, well, all right, I'm it. So the people are coming, I'm sussing them out. I'm like, who are you? What are you going to try and do? I'm there to protect my family. And the whole time I'm just thinking, I would never live in this place. Like this place is so wicked, so different to what I understand, I would never live there. And this is the context that the Israelites find themselves in. And God sends them this message because they believe that anyone who wasn't an Israelite was unclean. They didn't even have anything to do with anyone who was not part of their nation. And so now they're in this other culture with all these people that are doing these things that they would never imagine doing. And this is where God sends them this letter. In Jeremiah 29.3, it says, The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we see here that they've been carried away and God tells Jeremiah, send this letter to King Nebuchadnezzar to then put out to the people. And I love this because there's this open and honest transparency the God's like, I can tell him my plan. I'm not afraid of him. And so King Nebuchadnezzar gets this letter and he reads like, bless the city, build, plant seeds, pray for the city. He's like, great. He's commanding them to do good, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's all stoked at this point. But I love there's another part, which is a bit of a slap down. Because it says here that the God of Israel, who, to all who carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem and Babylon, like King Nebuchadnezzar you think you went and destroyed my people <laughs> it's because I let you like there's no way you could have been touched a hair on anyone's head unless I let you go in and do that that was my plan that was my plan from the beginning you had no hand in this mate so it's kind of like hey we're going to bless you but wake up to yourself you had no you know had no part in this it was all my plan that they would get taken away And the last thing we find in this verse 4 is God is claiming that Israel's not dead or defeated. That God's not departed from them or discarded them. He's just put them in time out. Like, you've done wrong, I'm putting you in time out. Because he's with them in their chastisement and their judgment. He still desires their flourishing. Because he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Israel's not done. He's saying, I'm still your God. I'm still working to redeem you from yourself and your sin, I still love you. I still want the best for you. You know, there's often times where I chastise my kids. They're really good kids. Let me just say that in front of everyone. They're great, great kids. But there are times where I have to put them in timeout, or I've got to say, you're banned from your iPad for six weeks. I'm not that long. (laughs) But why do I do it? I do it because I love them, right? I do it because I'm trying to teach them a lesson, But it doesn't mean I remove my love from them. I still love them dearly. I still want the best for them. I still want flourishing for them. And this is what we see here. God's like, yes, I've got you in time out. But listen, I'm with you and I'm commanding you to do something here. And because God's still with them, he commands them to build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may increase there and not diminish And seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. So we see here what God is saying to them. Yes, you've been carried away. But what I want you to do is I want you to build. I want you to construct. I want you to use your gifts and talents to to bless the city. And he says, I want you to dwell in them. Settle down. Determine to yourself and say, God's brought us here. This is where we're going to stay. And then he says, plant gardens, plant crops and trade in the city and and get involved in the economy. Eat and be merry. He's calling them to eat and learn from the other culture and enjoy the fruits of their labor in the city with everybody else. And he says, continue to increase in number. He's saying, each generation generation must marry and have kids and continue the line of David of Israel. Because the Messiah has not yet come. And that promise hasn't gone. He's still coming. So he's like, I want you to continue to multiply even when you're in time out. Don't stop multiplying. It's the same command he gave in Egypt. It's the same command he gives in Genesis. Multiply and fill the earth. And he says, seek the peace of the city. Saying, don't fight. Don't segregate yourselves off into a nice little Israeli community or a little Jewish community over here. Get involved in the community. Bring blessing and peace. And he says, pray for the city. Pray for the flourishing of the city. Pray for the people of the city, the inhabitants. Petition God to bless the city. Because if you do all of that, it'll bring peace for you. He says, for in its peace, you will have peace. And if the city is blessed by them and by God, then it's obviously good for us too, right? And so we as Christians, we can feel like Israelites in Babylon like we can feel like we're living in a culture that's totally against us. We feel like we're living in a culture that has totally different beliefs to us. A culture that is so different to us in our morals. A culture that's so different to us in our values and, and a culture that is so different to us in the way we live. And that's 100% true. So why does it feel like that for us as Christians? It's because we're ki- we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're sons and daughters of the king of heaven. And we are kings and priests to our God, the Bible says. We have been transformed. We're living in the now, but not yet of the kingdom. You know, we are called to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And, and we're in this space where we're bringing the kingdom, but the kingdom has yet to come when Christ returns and fully consummate all things. We're in this in-between time. But that's what we're called to do. And we're living in this broken world that we're destined to be redeemed from. So it feels weird to us. It feels like we don't fit in. Because what's happened is we've been redeemed from sin and this world by the blood of Jesus. And our eyes and our heart have been opened to the truth. And what happens is now we see clearly and we see the pain and the hurt and the sin and the destruction of the human heart and what that brings. And we end up being the minority in this world that's dominated by Satan and by sin and we're constantly tempted to assimilate, right? We're constantly tempted by our culture to lose our identity as Christians and just blend in and just sin we're constantly at battle with this sin and ridicule and separation and persecution because of our faith so what do we do do we just assimilate or do we fight or do we just plan our escape and hide away in our little communities no we do what God commands the Israelites to do we bless we build the kingdom of God in the midst of our culture We settle down where we are. We understand this is where we're going to do it and we we plant seeds of love, of mercy, of grace and we see the fruit of that bursting out in our city. We work in the midst of our culture and we multiply disciples by preaching the truth of the gospel and discipling one another and we bless those that use and abuse us and we pray for the peace of the city. We intercede for the city that we live in. We don't run and hide and surrender or go into our own little community. We engage by the power of the Holy Spirit in love, and we do all do all this because we want to see revival of the kingdom of God in the middle of the enemy camp. Right? Like we want to see the revival of the kingdom of God in Coolangatta, on the Gold Coast, in our state, in our nation, across the entire world. Church, we're not citizens of this world and its lusts and desires. We are citizens of heaven and we're commissioned by Jesus to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven right now through you guys. Amen. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about this. He says, Beloved, that's you. He's talking to his church. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I love this chapter or this verse because it talks about being sojourners and pilgrims. That now we are citizens of heaven, it's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like you're living in a foreign land. That everyone's against you, that you're slightly different. Because we are, we're living here and we're looking for a kingdom to come. But as sojourners and as pilgrims, he says, abstain from worldly lust. We abstain from the world. We don't assimilate. We abstain from those things. And I love it how he says it wars against your soul. Who would agree with me when you sin, it wars against your soul, right? Like you feel it deep down in your soul. He's saying, let's not go there. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Gentiles basically means everyone. So wherever you find yourself, have your conduct honorable. And that glorifies God by our good works. Therefore, should we fight against the system? Should we war against the government? Well, Peter continues. He says, Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to kings are supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of the evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not yet using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants to God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He's like, submit yourselves, submit yourselves to the authorities that you find yourselves under, no matter who that is, that we would see God break through there, that through our good works and our good conduct and the way that we treat people, that God's grace and kingdom would break into that zone. He's saying, submit, do good, honor, love, and fear God. And this is the same command as Israelites in Babylon, obey and bless the city. You know, as Christians, we are commanded to obey and bless. I love verse 15. He says, for this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? States it right there. That we are to bless and not fight against. So what does that mean? Does that mean we obey the speeding limits? Yes. Does that mean we pay taxes? Yes. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. They say, should we pay taxes? He goes, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. She's like, there's no use fighting against that because it's not against God's law. None of speeding or anything following those laws is against God's law. It's not sin. And so we do, we obey that. We obey the social laws. And here's the controversial thing. We wear masks. We do. That's what the government's telling us to do. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't like them, clearly. Like, you know, masks are not made for beards. They mess them up. Um, so I don't like masks at all. But ultimately, I don't know if they work or they don't work, but that's not my place. The government's saying, put them on. It's not a sin to put on a mask. Let's just put them on, hey? And by our good conduct, we would witness to the glory of Christ. So none of these are against the Word of God. And you might wish they were, because nobody likes masks, but they're not. So we must obey in the midst of it. That's God's will. Here's the thing, but we do speak up in love in areas that are sin. And Ares, and we find this actually in the time where the Israelites are in captive, captivity in Babylon. There are times where they did stand up to the authorities. So Daniel is um, in a time where he's not allowed to pray. And he's like, like, I'll follow everything else, but I'm praying to my God. There are times where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are, are commanded to bow down to a, to a statue. And they're like, we're just not doing that. We're not going to do that because that's going against our God. We're not worshipping other gods. So there are times where we do stand up, but let's be honest, in the Western world, we're not forced to sin, and we're not forced to worship other gods. It's different for us, but we do stand up in love for the poor, for the oppressed, for issues of morality and equality, and we do this with all within the system we live in, so God will be glorified. Look at William Wilberforce. He brought in the abolishment of slavery. Now, William Wilberforce worked for decades and decades and decades in the system to get that abolished. William Wilberforce didn't go, you know what, let's just go out and kill all the slave owners. or let's just go into the streets and cause a riot and damage property just to make a point. He didn't do that. He worked in the system legally and after decades of petitioning, he got slavery abolished to the glory of God and to the good of humanity. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see the apostles living like this under Roman rule. They would follow the rules of the authorities, but they refused to stop preaching the gospel. But they obeyed in everything else. And what happened? The gospel spread like wildfire, right? It's like, yes, we will obey, but when it comes to preaching the gospel, we're going to preach the gospel. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about this. He said, brethren, join in following my example, and those who walk, who so walk as you have us for an example or a pattern. You see, we see this in Paul's life, right? He obeyed every governor, king, but he just preached the gospel. Like he would get arrested and what would he do? He'd preach to the guards. He'd preach to the people in, in jail. They'd be singing hymns and, and literally earthquakes would come and open up the jail cell. Everyone would run and he's like, no, nope, i sitting here. And it was a witness to the jailer that he had his God was in control and the jailer comes to faith in Christ. So in every situation, we see him honoring, but also preaching the gospel. And so we follow the example of Paul, who even submitted to the authorities to his death. But the gospel message he preached still continues today right in the Bible. We still have his writings. So when he says, brethren, follow my example, he's calling us to do that. But then he has this contrast of other people. For many walk whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is even able to subdue all things to himself. Does the band want to come up? You know, I love this. He's like, here, follow our example. He goes, there's another example, though of people who are assimilating, of people who are getting into the culture and just going with the tide and they're sinning and their end is destruction. He's like, that is not you. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a representation of Christ on earth, no matter where you find yourself. And we're meant to walk in that. And we are looking for a kingdom to come, right? Where citizens is heaven, we know that we're only here for a short time to share God's love and grace and to get as many people on the journey with us that one day we will be glorified. Just as Jesus Christ is glorified. And this is the beauty of the gospel, right? He's saying, follow us, don't follow the world. God is at work. Jesus came to this earth, right? How weird would that be for Jesus? He's the God of heaven and earth. And he came down into this mess. He walked amongst us. He had people spit on him, mock him, ridicule him. He's the God of heaven and earth. Talk about walking in a world that is totally different to the one he set up on his throne. But we see this pattern of what we should do, right? What did he come and do? He came and laid down his life. That all of our sin was born upon him on the cross. That he showed us what it was like To live in love and mercy and grace in the midst of people that hate you. And then he goes to the cross and he bears all of our sin. And anyone, anyone who puts their faith and trust in him receives eternal life. Beautiful. You can't come up with that. And that's the pattern that we see that we're meant to do as Christians. So that's what it means for us practically. What does it mean? It means don't wish that you're in a more Christian environment. Maybe God's got you where you are to bring the light of the gospel and the power of the kingdom of God into that place through you. You know, often we think, oh, if I was just in a better environment, if I had more Christians around me, that's true. But you know what? Maybe he's put you there for that reason. Because maybe you're the only light in the darkness there. The only one to show them God's grace and love and mercy. And if you remove that light, it's just darkness. And you being there makes a more Christian environment, Right? It might be you, one, and a thousand, but the fact that you're there empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing grace, truth, and love. You might only have one little voice, but I'll tell you, it's a powerful voice because people are seeking truth. They're seeking hope, and they're seeking love. See, it is an honor that God's placed you there and trusted you with the gospel to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit to bless that environment for the good of the people and the glory of God. So what do we do? We do what God commanded the Israelites to do when they're in a foreign land. We bless whatever environment we find ourselves in. We build, we build relationships. We plant seeds of hope and see them come to germination. We eat and we engage with people. We multiply disciples of Jesus Christ and we bring peace to those situations through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we continually pray. There are a lot of times there's nothing we can do but pray. But through all this... Our environments will be blessed because we are there to the glory of God. So pray. Pray God would bless you. He would help you see. He would help you build and plant and multiply the kingdom of God right where you are. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, I've, I've not done this all the time. Lord, forgive us. But open our eyes, God, to the beauty of the gospel. That, God, you have called us to be more than people hiding away. You have called us to be your hands and feet in this world. God, open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive. The blessing it is that when we find ourselves in the darkness, that that light dispels the darkness. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment. Even in the midst of persecution and hate, how can we bless? That God, ultimately, they wouldn't think we're amazing. They would think you're amazing. That God, they would be so convicted by our conduct and our peace and our love that they would turn to you. God, your servants are here. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Through this series, we're praying for different people groups, different areas of influence and different job titles. So today, we're going to be praying for the government sector. So if you're part of any of these, we would love you to stand up and we want to pray for you. So if you work for any social services, not-for-profits, public services, the council, the government, politics, any legal profession, the law, armed services, or police force, or firefighters, or if you've worked in those industries at any stage... If you've been in the ambulance or medical or doctors, we would love you to stand because we want to pray for you, that God would use you in that place. So if you could stand now, that'd be awesome. So good. I look around the room. I'm like, ah, oh, I want to pray for you guys. I love you guys. So good. Can we just reach our hand out to someone who's close to you? Father God, uh, these people are working in these areas that can be so difficult and hard. God, I pray that you would protect them. That you would protect their hearts. That their hearts would not go hard. But over their time that they serve and they serve you, that their hearts would be softened. God, that they would see through your eyes. God, I ask that you bless them in every spiritual way. That you would give them wisdom, discernment, understanding, power by your Holy Spirit. That people would actually see you in their eyes and and hear you in their words. Feel your spirit on and through them and and turn and want to give you glory. Bless them, Lord. I I just pray that there would be amazing fruit wherever they find themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.